0: You're listening to the Yizi Research Podcast, hosted and created by me, Imani, a researcher. This is the podcast for people who research people. In this episode, I chat with Carol.
1: Uh, my name is Carol Rossi, and I currently run a consultancy focused on helping design or product or UX leaders increase the impact of UX research in their organization. My focus has mostly been on companies that are just kind of getting started with research, so maybe new or new-ish, helping those leaders figure out how to establish and optimize their research function, you know, maybe they hadn't had before. Um, Before this current role, I spent 14 years leading UX research teams at Third Wallet, at Edmonds, at Kelly Blue Book, And I established the research practice at both Edmonds and KBB. And at NerdWallet, I grew the team in operational maturity size and level of impact over, I guess I was there four and a half years. Um, Overall, I've been working in user experience for an insane amount of time, more than 25 years, which sounds really crazy when I say it, but it's true.
0: Carol has managed and built teams at a variety of companies, so I figured that she knew a lot about how to prioritize research projects and how to use UX research to make an impact. Your LinkedIn page claims that you help companies maximize UX research impact. Impact is a word we hear a lot in UX research. What is impact in UX research to
1: you? It's a great question. It means a lot of different things. Overall, I think of impact as the value that's gained from the research. So that can be measured in any number of ways. So I'll I'll share a few examples. I think the the most common way we think about UX research impact is to measure it by the way business metrics are moved based on decisions that were made as a result of research insights. So for example, If a team's goal is to increase user registrations and the designer, you know, and the researcher do some research and the designer then ultimately makes a decision about how the experience should flow to get more users into registration based on what was uncovered during research. And then let's say once that's launched, users actually do register in bigger numbers. That's a measurable Positive impact that we might be able to ascribe back to research insights. Another way people measure research impact is through the um, impact to the organization in terms of like broader decision making. So, for example, let's say there's a team that doesn't really know a lot about their target audience. And as a result, team members have spent pretty substantial amount of time in meetings arguing about what their target audience needs. I'm sure. Your listeners have been in meetings like that. And so research can, of course, uncover the audience's unmet needs, and that's going to lead to increased efficiency across the team, wasted reduction in wasted time, and ultimately provide a good starting point for them to even know how to think about what their users need. And I think a third example of impact that is very important to me is uh, how much time we can save ourselves and the company at large by prioritizing the most valuable research. Um, we don't need fresh research if there's already enough evidence from prior primary research or secondary sources. A researcher could, exam- for example, save like, the team a couple of weeks in fresh research time by spending some time looking through what we already know.
0: Yeah. I like that you had different examples of how to measure impact. There isn't just one way to do it. From what you've said, it's implied that research impact is tied into the vision and strategy of the product and the company, right? How do you define UX research vision and strategy, especially when you're trying to think about business objectives as well?
1: Yeah. I think a UX research vision is ultimately how we want the research to contribute to the organization. You know, um, A research vision could be something like, Research is seen as a key contributor to company strategy, or everybody at the company uses a consistent model to prioritize research for the greatest impact. Strategy is what you do to enact the vision. So what decisions do you make to move towards the vision? A research strategy would consist of things like like how you decide when to do research and when not, what types of studies to focus on, and stuff like that. In my opinion, all research should ladder up to the broader vision and strategy of the organization. So there's no point in having a research vision and strategy that doesn't align to the org's goals. And there's just no point in doing research just to do research. So I know that seems kind of obvious, but I think sometimes it's not totally clear how to make that happen. So, for example, I recently heard a PM say, we talk to our users every week. But then we get overwhelmed with other work and we don't always take action on those user insights. So to me, that indicates that they're valiantly trying to incorporate research into their product development process, but they're not doing doing it in a way that it's having impact or is sustainable or necessarily tied to their product vision and strategy, which is to work on this other stuff. Another way I think about how research is integrated within vision and strategy is simply the way research is approached. So I like to think about a what I call scrappy, not crappy, quote unquote, approach, meaning we should first identify what the business problem is. We should then figure out what we already know about that topic. And do we need additional insights? And if we do, how do we get those in the most streamlined way, rather than coming at it as sort of an arrogant research organization and saying there's one way that research is done and here it is.
0: I appreciate that. The fact that there are different ways to do research and you don't always have to do net new research because you may already have existing information there. A follow-up question to that. If you are the first researcher at a company or even if you're coming in as a consultant like you
1: or me, right? How do you
0: identify a company's research maturity?
1: It can be challenging to identify a company's research maturity without a deeper dive into how research is or isn't contributing to the company's broader goals. So the first thing I would do as the first researcher at a company is conduct a number of stakeholder interviews to uncover what the org wants from research what they already know about the key questions they're trying to answer, how they want to re- see research integrated into their product development process, those answers are going to tell you a lot. If the responses are something like, well, we don't know much about our target users, but we're eager to learn because we know it'll improve our bottom line, that's probably a more mature organization from the start than if the answer is like, we just need someone to run usability studies. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, usability studies are incredibly valuable and can be organized in a way to have broader strategic benefit beyond the immediate product that you're trying to do the usability study on. But if you're being asked to just, quote, run studies, that indicates there's a lot of opportunity to increase the maturity of that org's approach to and understanding of what research can contribute.
0: Once you've established that um, a company has a level of UX maturity that can justify bringing on a team of other researchers. Uh, You now are the hiring manager. How does a hiring manager determine the characteristics of
1: the first UX research hires? So the characteristics of the first UX research hires probably have some relationship to the org size and research maturity. I would argue that most companies have fairly small research teams, like less than 20-ish people, probably less than like 10 people. And with that kind of structure, you need mostly researchers who are fairly senior and capable of not only executing studies end to end on their own, but can also help assess the maturity of the product development teams they support, like we talked about earlier, so they know how to jump on opportunities that present themselves to expand research impact beyond specific studies or teams. Um, recently, the recruiting company user interviews surveyed researchers mostly across the US, but I think there were some outside as well, and found something like, and don't quote me on the exact number, but it was about 40% of researchers work for companies that have less than 200 employees, and about 30% of researchers are on teams of less than four, and like 20% are single researchers. So most companies are not FANG they're not meta, they're not Google, they're not Microsoft, with hundreds of UXRs on staff, those large companies can more easily absorb more junior researchers because they work in teams where there's often a principal or a lead with more junior associates that they mentor. And then those juniors, of course, get more on-the-job training and they you know, bloom from there. So I've seen a shift in the last, I don't know, year or two towards hiring leader, director first researchers, which tells me companies realize they need someone seasoned to successfully get that practice going. Whereas a few years ago, I think the trend was, let's hire a senior or a mid-level because we just need somebody to get in here and run studies. I think that can be challenging for the kind of mid-level researcher because they're often very, very smart and they have a really good understanding of research craft, but they can in my experience, get kind of overwhelmed being effective in the broader, more strategic view.
0: And you mentioned that most companies don't have a research team that's huge, like um, Google or Microsoft, right? Most companies have small research teams or even just research teams of one. Mm -hmm. So for those companies that are smaller, and let's assume that they have a lower research maturity, are junior or senior researchers generally better suited for those companies that have a lower research maturity?
1: I think that what I have found on the teams that I've led and from speaking with colleagues at other companies, I think generally, first of all, when you're building a team, you're always looking for complementary skills. I mean, at first, you just need people that are, I believe, a little bit more senior so they can start to help. I don't want to say evangelize because it's almost an overused word. It's almost like just help get the research going, just establish the practice, right? Um, at some point, You do get to a point where you have enough people, there's enough, uh, there's enough, um, you know, there's enough happening. The practice is kind of running on its own a little bit. And so you can absorb more junior people at that point. My experience has been that it can be challenging to pull in more junior people too soon. Having said that, when I was at Edmonds and when I was at Kelly Blue Book, I hired A coordinator fairly quickly, but that was for a situation where we needed someone who could do the sort of piece of research, what we now call research ops, that's really specifically focused on complex um, recruiting. But for companies and for B2B companies, I think that's a really important function still. But as we all know, research ops has blossomed to something much bigger than that. And um, I've found that at this point, if what you're doing is recruiting for sort of general consumer-based research, it doesn't necessarily require that kind of a role. I could be wrong. I'd be curious to hear differently, but that's been my experience.
0: And for companies, let's say like uh, Meta and Google and Amazon that have that higher research maturity are junior or senior researchers generally better suited for that. I know you said earlier that those types of companies can absorb um, junior researchers because they have the resources to train them.
1: I think you always need a mix, and I think that as and, and I, I would be curious to know what other people's experiences are because it's it's been a minute since I've been in a company of that size. But what I what I hear and what I understand from uh, talking with colleagues and other people in in those companies. You always need a mix. You need to have, like I said, complementary skills. Let's say you're trying to build up the quant piece of your team and you need people that are stronger in quant, or of course, we would all love to find mixed methods researchers. Uh, so we've got people that can really understand how to triangulate data from various types of um, studies. So I think it, the answer is it depends, but I do see that it's a little bit easier for larger companies to absorb a larger number of more junior researchers.
0: And when you worked at Edmonds.com as the director of UX research, you established all the UX research efforts there. What was the most challenging part of doing this and how did you work through this challenge?
1: You know, that was a really incredible experience because I joined Edmonds at a moment when they were very enthusiastically embracing design thinking, quote unquote. So I had an incredible amount of success out the gate getting everybody excited about like their first conversations with consumers, their first personas that were based on real research that actually a lot of the PMs, designers and engineers went out on the road with us to um, participate in developing those personas first opportunities to run research themselves because we democratized the practice. Like there was a lot going on. Um, and I had also created a research roadmap that outlined what we needed to do the first couple of years. So we, got, we collected all kinds of other uh, data too. And so I had a lot of immediate support for a lot of that effort. And then after a couple of years, enthusiasm waned as it naturally does. And we started getting more questions about how we could demonstrate the impact of the work in quantitative terms, which makes sense because business leaders like numbers, right? So um, some of the ways that we did that. So I think the first point I would make is that, you know, the, the first business need was get everybody to understand how research can inform their decision-making through design thinking. That was the first thing. And then the the second kind of need was, um, you know, understand What insights can we provide that are going to have more of a quantitative focus? So the company had a strong analytics team and we were great partners with them. And so we started to do a lot more to examine what we were seeing in their data, how it related to what we saw with UX research. We got super lucky in that one of the senior directors of product decided to join our research effort, which was incredible. And, and she was a, a wonderful partner for years, part, starting with you know, doing a lot of this partnership with analytics. Um, another way we dealt with that quant challenge was by adding a voice of customer program, which she ran, where we measured customer satisfaction at scale. And that enabled us to tell the story about how customer experience impacted revenue and leads, which were the magic primary business metric. And we started to see that when we could point to areas where those numbers were dropping and we made improvements, we saw double-digit increases in lead quality uh, over time by understanding what our customers needed, measuring in those spots, and updating those experiences appropriately.
0: Now. Once a research function is established, different stakeholders, such as designers, product managers, business leaders, like you mentioned earlier, have different research questions. Mm -hmm. How do you ensure that all of them feel heard?
1: Most people would say at this point that a best practice is that any research that's conducted should always include stakeholders in the process. And whether it's a one-off concept test or foundational research to deepen the understanding of our target audience, we definitely don't want to be off in a corner running studies and throwing reports over a wall, right? That's, that's not happening. So we're leading the work and they're in it with us. And so if teams are included, if, if the broader team, right, designers, PMs, engineers, whoever you've got, content strategists, are included in all the research, then when they have research questions, first of all, they know they can raise those because they're already in the conversation. There's an established dialogue. And secondly, they've often learned through our partnership more about how research works, and so i found that they know more about what we can answer and what we can't. They're more likely to ask higher quality questions. We definitely want to know what their questions are, and then we need to figure out, like I kind of said earlier, what we already know about that topic, do we have a good enough answer now, and whether it's something we need to do fresh research on. One challenge that sometimes happens even though team members understand that things need to be prioritized sometimes we need to go back and have a conversation about like why maybe their project didn't get prioritized and we just need to manage that through communication
0: and this next question is a very big question i think all the researchers will appreciate your answer to this how do you prioritize which research topics are worth researching because you get a lot of feedback from your stakeholders and it's not always easy to figure out which you should research next How do you make sense of all of that?
1: Yeah, I think a framework is really helpful. And I've seen many different kinds of frameworks. Some people use effort and impact. I mean, there are so many different ways. Um, The thing that I would, the thing that I do and that I would suggest is to look at several factors. What do we already know about the topic? Um, And I'll talk about these a little bit more. What's the risk of moving forward without additional research? What's the cost of doing the research in terms of time and also resources like costs of buying credits on a platform or something, you know? Um, And what's the cost of developing the product? And just looking at all of those factors, like, for example, if we know a lot about the topic already and the risk of moving forward is relatively low, let's say it's a feature we already have on the site and we've done some research in the past and we have analytics data as well. I would give that research request probably a lower priority rating because that could be a situation where we tell the team, look, we already know this, this, and this about it, and maybe help them think through how to move forward with that information. It might be that they're just not seeing the connection between what we already know and what they think they still need to understand. And we can help bridge that gap for them. If the topic at the other extreme is, It's a brand new exploration for the company. We've never done it before. Uh, We don't know much or anything about it, at least in terms of how it could play out in our experience. And it's a highly strategic effort that has a lot of eyeballs on it from executives and everybody. And so the company's success kind of depends on it. That's something we definitely want to prioritize to do research on. There's going to be mostly stuff in between, and that's where... You know, you have these guidelines, but it really comes down to a conversation with stakeholders to figure out what gets prioritized.
0: If you are an aspiring or current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, professional brand, interview skills, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yeezy Research Coaching Program. Coaching clients exit the program with a refreshed resume, cover letter, research portfolio, and detailed notes to make them more competitive in the UX research job market. If you are interested or know someone who is, visit YizzyResearch.com to learn more and apply. That's Yizzy Research, Y-Z-Z-I, research.com. A part of this effort to prioritize research projects, I would imagine that yields a lot of documentation, or maybe it doesn't. For me, it does. What types of documentation do you maintain to keep track of all the research topics?
1: Again, in the kinds of companies that I generally work with, a spreadsheet works really well, you know, like a Google Sheet. Create a template, and and this is a template that I use with clients. It's like, we track the project, we track all the factors that I just mentioned, and the final decision, and we can have... Like, there's a document that everybody can get into. Literally, we can all be in there. People can be adding their comments. That can be a place where we have a conversation. Um, And then we can also use that sheet to, you know, once we make a decision, then I would feed it in. If teams are using JIRA or Asana or something like that, a project management tool like that, whichever projects move forward, you can move into that tool, and then manage it, you know, as a project there, right? I know that some teams like to use those tools to manage requests that come in, and I think that's totally appropriate in some environments. I think it just depends on how you're using those tools, but it doesn't need to be fancy. It can literally be a spreadsheet. I think the key factor is that there's transparency about what's going in there. All of your stakeholders have a chance to put their comments in there, and then the researchers. Designers, you know, people that are primarily going to be doing the research can go in and, and we can have a conversation about what the requests are and the priorities that we want to move forward with.
0: In doing this prioritization, how do you inform stakeholders that you're not working on their research topic?
1: Often, because there's a process that we outline for people, like, hey, we're going to collect your research requests, we're going to talk with you about them, we're going to then prioritize them based on these criteria that we've just told you about. And then by a certain date, date X, you know, we're going to tell you whether we're moving forward with your request or not. I found that a combination of on date X, you know, sending out something, either putting it in Slack or even an email, whatever is the best communication method at your organization, that summarizes on the spreadsheet, here are the things we're moving forward with, here are the things that are below the line. Literally, I would draw here's the line and drop those other items down, move them down. Everybody has that information, everybody can see how we arrived at that decision, and then a follow-up conversation with stakeholders that put requests in for projects that are ended up below the line, and that could be the researcher that's working with that team, it could be me, it just depends on like how sensitive we think they're going to be about the fact that their project ended up below the line, you know, I, that's really how I I do it. I think Often, if we're not taking on their request, it's because there's some other corporate priority that we need to focus on, and and hopefully most people in the organization know what those corporate priorities are, and so they understand the reasoning. So I've had many conversations with people who say, yeah, I know why you're not doing it, but I'm disappointed, and that's okay. We can manage to that, or we can also... I think this is where, you know, kind of looking back at some of the data we already have comes into play, because this is often a time where we'd say, it's not a flat no, it's like, well, not this thing, but we can tell you some other things. Here's some stuff we can share with you that could be valuable to you, so that it's not just like, no, we're not doing your thing.
0: And you mentioned, you you touched on this a little bit earlier when you mentioned business objectives. Let's talk a little bit more about it. How do you account for business goals when thinking about UX research topics and projects?
1: I mean, research should always be aligned to business goals. It gets complex because companies have short and long-term goals. And since some research needs to be done ahead of the development roadmap, so like anything that you're doing, you know, discovery or early stage research needs to be done before people start coding, right? And and even before they start designing. And that's where you can get into conflicts about whether we should be focusing as a research team on more short-term or long-term goals. I think these things need to be discussed and worked out. There's no pat answer, but we should definitely be tying back to business goals. It's just that the actual prioritization gets a little bit complicated when, oh yeah, we really need to focus on this Thing that's happening now but we also need to focus on this thing later and i think the way that i've handled it in the last couple of companies where i've been and what i encourage clients to do now is to think about leaving the bigger research projects that require a lot more in-depth thought that have more broad impact to researchers to do and that's where we you know, train our friends in design and product to be able to do a lot of lean research on their own. So we don't need to be in there doing the very specific usability studies or even concept tests that they can run on their own unless it's like a really complicated situation. We can help them, support them in running that on their
0: own. In an article that you wrote a while ago, you mentioned something called insights frameworks and that fits into what you were just saying. What are insights frameworks and how do you use them?
1: So when I say insights frameworks, I simply mean a framework created from insights that that span multiple studies. And that could be primary research that we did within the company, or it could be secondary research, meaning someone else in the industry did it and we learned about it because they published it. So in my experience, it's really common for we as researchers to think that if somebody asks a question, we need to run a study, but often we already have answers. And so, um, I've seen teams save literally four to six weeks in discovery sprints where they think they need to start from the very beginning on something. And we can say, actually, this is an adjacent product area where we already did a lot of that work. We have knowledge. It's not exactly the same, but it's, I like to say B plus, like it's, Good enough, and maybe in this situation, because it's not something that's totally unknown, it's not something that has such high strategic value to the company that we need to go start fresh. We can look at what we now call insights from prior knowledge into a framework they can use to get started. So, one example. And I love this example because it was really a very sort of enterprising researcher on my team started to notice this trend across several studies. During UX research, users were responding best to in-app recommendations for behavior change that included three very specific types of information. So this person started to see every study we ran, the thing that people responded to in UX research were, you know. The things that had these three elements, right? And so that person went to their analytics partner, delved into the A-B test results, and also delved into just straight up analytics. And together, they discovered that the best performing recommendations were the ones that followed the same three-part pattern that this researcher had noticed in UX research. So referencing both the qualitative from our team and the analytics behavioral data, the researcher and the analytics partner summarized their findings into this thing they called the magic moment framework. And that outlined this three-part pattern and best practices for associated design and copy. Based on all this you know, triangulation of this data, the framework was then enthusiastically embraced by the app team, who recognized, hey, this is really valuable to give us a head start when designing future recommendations. So they did that. And then subsequent testing over time showed really double-digit uplift in key areas of the app where those recommendations were happening. So that worked really well for us. I think larger teams and teams that have a very diverse set of different types of researchers who have behavioral scientists on staff do this kind of work all the time. For smaller teams, it can be valuable to just you know, go through what you know create a framework and operate with that. And of course you keep testing it out, right? Frameworks are living. So it's not like this is it and we're done. It's like, this is it. Now let's just try this as a starting point and see what it does for us.
0: Like you said, researchers don't always have to do New research all the time and have those insights frameworks h- helps mitigate that that urge to do that. But let's say as you have more researchers join a growing team, how do you make sure that they understand how to prioritize research projects and how to use those insights frameworks?
1: I generally make sure that people joining my teams learn about all aspects of the team. So prioritizing the work and the fact that we have insights frameworks you know, that's stuff that they'd learn about during onboarding. And, and of course, you know, I think in, as a hiring manager, it really is a, a great practice to have kind of a like 30, 60, 90 day onboarding for people, especially the first 30 days, make sure that we're not overwhelming people, but we're also giving them the information they need. And so at some point in that onboarding process, we talk about here's how we prioritize and what we've done in terms of these frameworks. Typically, individual researchers contribute to the conversation about priorities. And so, we, you know, they're the ones that are on the front line working with the teams. And so they know this stuff best. But ultimately, there's a lead or a manager, or if you're on a big enough team and you've got a research ops specialist, somebody like that who's responsible for the final prioritization. Hopefully, there's communication about business priorities that we can all refer back to communication from you know the product team or whoever's running the business priorities um so everybody joining our team is going to know what's higher or lower priority in terms of like we were saying earlier the business vision and strategy and that's why we are prioritizing things the way we are on our team
0: so earlier we talked about senior researchers and more junior researchers and when it's best to actually staff either or, or a mix of both. What advice do you have for researchers who are not the lead researchers, so usually more junior, but they're uncomfortable with how the UX research is currently being done? How should they approach that?
1: I mean, as a manager, I would hope that any researcher on my team feels comfortable bringing up any issues, whether it's about research priorities or planning or anything else, um, Hopefully, you know, your listeners are in environments where they feel comfortable raising questions or concerns. Perhaps one way to do it is to go into it from a place of curiosity, ask how the priority was determined or the method was chosen or whatever the question is. I think intention to understand goes a very long way. Another model that I found really helpful, and it's often described as a feedback model, but I think it can be really valuable in any sort of challenging conversation is it's called SBI, Situation, Behavior, and Impact. And you can look it up, you know, it's like there are a lot of Harvard Business Review and all kinds of publications about how to use the SBI model. But it's basically, here's the situation I've encountered, here's the behavior I'm seeing, and here's the impact of it. So if there's a way to frame the concern in terms of here's the situation, here's the behavior, and here's the impact, it takes emotion out of it. And it can be valuable to have a framework if you're trying to have a challenging conversation. I would also hope that even if, like if the question is about prioritization, you know, that the researcher has, I would hope that even if they're not responsible for prioritization, they're involved and have autonomy to be able to choose the method that's most appropriate to execute against the study or at least feel like they're in conversation about that kind of stuff so that it's not like people are just being told what to do without it being a conversation. And lastly, a
0: related question. What advice do you have for researchers who may pick the wrong research topic to focus on and how can they recover? So I know like for me, there have been times, especially when I was earlier in my UX research career, where I didn't always know how to prioritize research topics. I wish I had an episode like this to listen to. <laughs> I wish I had a Carol to ask this type of question. <laughs> I, didn't know which, I didn't know which questions to pick. Um, so I may have picked things that weren't really important to the rest of the team. So what advice do you have for people who have been like me in the past, who just picked the wrong topic and how do you recover at work?
1: I mean, we've all been there. And I think generally, like I said at the top of this discussion, like I've been doing this work forever. And the reason that I've been able to do this work forever is that I stay current and I recognize when I need to change something. So I think self-reflection and the ability to recognize a growth opportunity Those things are like super vital to be successful in our world. I mean, to me in life too, but like, especially in the, in our work world, I mean, we've all heard about the importance of having a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed or stuck mindset. And in the organizations where I've worked, people recognize that we're all learning as we go. Even if we know a lot, there's always more that we could be learning. And so recovering from a a mistake It's just part of the process and to be expected. So I would suggest that back to your specific example, like I would just come clean. Oh, it looks like we learned X, Y, and Z insights, and we could have learned about this other aspect of the product. Perhaps run a quick retro with the team, which is always a good idea. What went well? What could have gone differently? What could we do differently next time, et cetera, the standard format, Get their perspective, perhaps establish a prioritization process for future work. Oh, I've learned from this that maybe we need a prioritization process. Here's a way we can do that, right? Make sure to get stakeholders involved in the prioritization to reduce the potential for another misstep. Um, Maybe get input on their roadmap earlier to understand what research might be needed before they even ask for it. I think own the problem and take responsibility to change by trying to include them in the conversation for anything that you do in the future.
0: I also like the idea of not always doing new research and ensuring that research is connected to business goals. It's not always easy to connect UX research to business goals, but it increases impact when we successfully do so. Thanks for listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. I'm Imani, the host and creator. Visit yeezyresearch.com for podcast show notes and information about my UX research coaching program. Again, that's yeezyresearch.com, Y-Z-Z-I, research.com. This podcast was produced by Whisper and Mutter.